We continue our study in uh, the book of Luke, uh, his gospel, and we're going to be on page 870 if you want to use the Bible that's in your pew or chair. Page 870, this is Luke 1137. He encounters the Pharisees and lawyers here. In all of our studies, we're asking the question, what is it about Jesus that makes him worthy to be followed? What is it revealed in these passages that draw us to want to follow him? And this may be one of the most difficult ones because it is such a searching passage So you have to ask yourself the question, do I want to follow someone who's going to search me like this? (laughs) But I would put before you that that searching is the great liberation, the great liberation in his grace and mercy. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Guess who's coming to dinner, right? (laughs) You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. This is a bad move on the lawyer's part. But he says, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, bless us to understand your word, to believe your word, to 
be searched by your word and to be set free by your word. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us your spirit, we pray, that we might know you and love you truly. Amen. This is a pretty severe run-in with the Pharisees, but it's certainly not the first one. Uh, It was a Sabbath, and there was a man with a withered hand, and it says the scribes and the Pharisees were actually watching to see if he was going to heal the withered man. So they would have something to accuse him, because if he did, it would transgress their laws of purity, the laws that kept them separate from sinners, isolated from sinners, and close to God. It says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at heart, but uh, grieved because of the hardness of their heart. And then he healed the guy. (laughs) And they went out to plot to kill him. They criticized him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. They criticized him uh, when he allowed this sinful woman to wash his feet and anoint them. So Jesus regularly broke their rules for purity, but these rules of purity which supposedly kept them clean before God and kept them in fellowship with God, really disguised hearts that were radically distant from God. So rule-keeping and purity all the while masking a great distance from God in their hearts. So this Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner is astonished when, once again... Jesus doesn't follow the made-up rules for purity. And then Jesus, though, goes after this elaborate disconnect between this uh, outward seeking of God, so it looks like they're doing, and the, uh, actually their hearts that have no love for God. And here, Jesus, in essence, commands a good and honest heart. He commands a good and honest heart from his people. Because a good and honest heart, in the first place, does not nurture evil under a show of rule keeping. Now, I'm using on purpose nurture evil. That is, promote evil, advance evil, uh, dwell in evil, be a part of evil under the show of rule keeping. So he talks about the fact that they clean the outside of the cup and dish. And he uses that as an analogy about their own lives. Kids, uh, if you've ever seen a gravy boat, right, has a pitcher, a spout on one end and a handle on this end. And you pick it up and you pour gravy out. But what would happen if you're going to clean the dishes and you just clean the outside of the gravy boat? And you put it up in the cabinet and you get it out a week, half later... What's going to be in the gravy boat? Things alive. Things are growing. Things are taking over. So you must clean the whole. And that's the, that's the analogy. What's the point of this outward show when it's the inward part of you that must be cleansed? That's the part that's so dirty, just like the gravy boat. So imagine just you spend a whole 20 minutes on the outside of the gravy boat. What good is that? And that's in effect what he's saying here. They think they're spiritually sanitized. They're spiritually bacteria-free. But they haven't even started. And there they are, t- 
tithing even the little bits of spices. We love Central Market because you can go in and you can get 17 cents worth of dill, you know, in the little bag. I just love that. I feel like I'm cheating them or something, you know, walking out with my little bag. So, you know, this cost, these six things cost me a dollar twenty-five. <laughs> I just know they're losing money on me uh, at that point. But just imagine I get one of these little packages and I measure out one-tenth of it and bring it to Steve and say, you know, here's my tenth. And Jesus doesn't say that's wrong. He says, but that's what you're focused on. But justice and, and love to God, loving and adoring God, wanting fairness and and. And good things for the poor, you don't, you're not even close to that. And so this is, this is amazing. Uh, like people can use rule keeping to stay away from God. Uh, suppose this lady is measuring out her uh, spices and all the while she's gossiping. She's measuring out her spices and she's planning for how she's going to make Mary feel bad because Mary forgot something, Right? But she's measuring her spices. She's going to pay her tenth as her heart is far from God. So you can, you can use rule keeping to stay away from God. To stay away from a God who is merciful and forgiving. He, he says they love, they need and love the honor of the great seat in the synagogue and these Elaborate greetings they get to be called wonderful names in front of everybody. It boasts their ego. Because they're not free to live for the honor of God. They're imploding. The honor must be mine. They love themselves instead of God. They love their own honor instead of the honor of God. They delight in their praise. They don't delight in the praise of God. They don't lose themselves in praising and honoring this merciful God. And then showing that mercy to other people. You see, if I'm a rule keeper, as the Pharisees were, I make a God of finding fault with other people. It's my delight. I feel significant in my rule keeping and in my criticism. I love to keep a careful eye out so I can be disappointed in someone. I love to hang on to a grudge. I love to bathe in bitterness and resentment like a warm bath. I'm quick to judge, slow to forgive. I like to see people fail. It comforts me. It keeps me above them. It shows I'm better. I'm important. I'm greedy for importance. Importance is so easily transgressed. Right? That's a real keeper. If you're a rule keeper, you can't really love God and admire God, this God of mercy. Because then you have to admit your need of mercy. This, and you have to abandon this system of rule keeping and earning God's favor. Then you're just like everyone else. You're in need of mercy. You're in need of forgiveness. And you have to abandon your contempt of other people. Walking in forgiveness might be a life of freedom and happiness, so they say, but you can't believe it because you're just going to hang on to finding fault with others. That's real keeping. And it's ironic 
that in seeking to be pure, they become a source of impurity for others. That's the talk about the open grave or the grave that you don't recognize. You see, graves were a a thing of impurity. If if you associated with a a dead body or walked on a tomb, you'd become impure. The irony, you are keeping yourself pure, you think, and you are an infection of impurity. Kind of the same thing about the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup. This heartless rule keeping is deadly. They're not leading people to heaven. They're leading them to the grave. And so a good and honest heart does not nurture evil under this show of rule keeping. But then he turns to the lawyers. And it changes with just one word. This good and honest heart does not nurture evil under a show of rule making. Of rule making. Because the lawyers are connected with the Pharisees and they formulate the details of the observances that the Pharisees carry out. And the lawyers carry it out too, but they're particularly the ones that are formulating the laws. They're kind of the uh, CPAs, the accounting firm, you know, uh, keeping accounts, so to speak, of all the things wrong. So they basically multiplied the number of ways a person could offend God. And so people were spiritually crushed. They're devastated by their failure to keep these rules. The rules are like landmines. You can't help but step on one of them. And you can see the oppression of it. You can see the control of it. You can see the power of it. To keep these people under your thumb. You see... The teaching should have built them up and helped them follow God. The teaching should give them support and encouragement. And he says, you don't lift one little burden off of them. You put all this weight, you don't try to lift one thing for them. You don't give them support and encouragement. It should be rich with the steadfast love and forgiveness of God. But no, no. And you know... You can be a rule maker in your own house, man or woman. I've seen it both ways. I've done one side of it before, okay? You can can create a relationship like this. You can create a family like this. You multiply the rules. You multiply the ways you can be offended. You multiply the ways you can be disappointed, the ways you can be neglected. You make sure nothing is ever quite right. You find something wrong every time. You keep the other person or people off balance. Of course, they don't feel like they're loved. They just feel like they're wrong. Wrong all the time. That's a rule maker. That's a lawyer. And it is deadly. And when you take, you should take 46 and 52 together and they're kind of the bread of the sandwich, okay? 
the lawyers talked about in 46 and 52. And in between that is this talk about the tombs of the prophets. So this heavy burden is to be tied in with this idea of you taking away the key of knowledge. Okay. Well, the key, as Jesus speaks again and again of them, to them, is mercy. Here he, he talks about justice and love to God. He talks about alms, which alms should be a heart. Uh, as he says there, you should be giving from within. You should give your innards <laughs> when you're giving uh, your uh, goods away to others. It should be a sign that you've taken them into yourself and you're treating them like kinfolk and you're caring for them. And, and your heart is involved in it. <clears throat> so Jesus is all about mercy. And the key is the mercy of God. The key is the grace and forgiveness of God, which is going to be manifest so beautifully in the person of Jesus Christ. It's this relationship that you can have with God as Jesus talks about God as your father. But... A rule maker tends to drive you away from God. A rule maker tends to beat you away from a real relationship. The rule maker tends to lock and bolt the door against a real relationship with God. So, you and I, with others, are supposed to reflect the tender grace of Jesus. But if we live by criticism, if we live by rulemaking, then we're setting out landmines even for our loved ones to, to step on. So a good and honest heart doesn't nurture evil under the show of rule keeping or rule making or under a show of right associations. And so we have this, the the... The Pharisees, and especially in this context, the lawyers desire to associate with the prophets. Building and honoring the tombs of the prophets was a big deal for these leaders. They made it make a big show of their association with these prophets, implying that they never would have been involved in such killing. It's the ultimate right association, after all, being associated with the prophets. But it was really a a part of their rule keeping, a show of their righteousness and faithfulness to God. We support the prophets. We love the prophets. Boy, did Jesus get after them on this. And he brought such irony and satire into this situation. Because prophet's ministry was foretelling the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry is a continuation of the prophet's ministry. And Jesus, in effect, is saying, you think that you support the prophets when now you reject the very message of the prophets as now it's manifested in me. Give me a break. Really? You honor the prophets, but you reject those who continue the prophet's message? The Israel rejected its messengers. You're rejecting your messengers. You're just like them. And the spirit that killed the prophets lives in you. And here is his irony. So when you build the tombs, you outwardly are honoring the prophets. But because you reject the prophets and you reject their message, basically, you, in fact, are agreeing with your ancestors' work. You're agreeing with it. 
You see, they killed him and you build their tombs. It's as though, as, as one commentator put it, they kill the prophets, you make sure they're dead. They killed them, you bury them. They murdered them, you celebrate it. By your present rejection of what is the same word that they rejected. Sometimes Jesus is not nice. But he will tell you the truth. He will tell you the truth. And then he introduces wisdom there in verse 49. And wisdom in the Old Testament is a personification of this attribute of God, of wisdom. And wisdom is a woman in Proverbs 8 and 9, personified. And she was with God at creation. She is with God in his providences. So Jesus takes this up and he quotes wisdom as though wisdom has spoken to him and told him the future. Here's wisdom's plan. Wisdom has revealed her plan. She is going to bring messengers to these leaders... And they're going to kill them, and then we'll see what they're really like. That's what wisdom says she's going to do. We're going to see who they are. We're going to take off the mask of this tomb building and show that they're murderers just like their father. And, of course, here he's talking about John the Baptist, himself, and the apostles. And it happened. And then he speaks of the culmination, kind of like this great tsunami that's just built up and is about to crash upon them of judgment. And when he speaks of prophets here, now he's in a more general way because he includes Abel. So he's talking about those with an intimate link with God, those who stand with God. And he starts with Abel, the first one murdered. And in the Hebrew Bible... Chronicles is the last book, and at the end of Chronicles, in, verse, in chapter 24, Zechariah, the priest, is killed. So he says, from Abel to Zechariah, all the bloodshed of all the prophets, all the righteous people in the Old Testament, especially because what they spoke of, what they prophesied, has now all come here And manifested in me. And so when you put me to death, you put everybody to death. You say no to everything that's ever been in the Bible. And so all of it's going to crash upon your head. He's probably speaking here in part of the terrible judgment in 70 AD. Which Jerusalem was plowed under basically. But especially the final judgment. That will fall on all who reject this message. And then, this is amazing. Even after Jesus says these things to these men. That you are calling them to repentance. Offering by by piercing their hearts that they might see their inconsistency. That they might see their, their wickedness and repent. No, when he goes out, they start after him again. They start, they just keep manifesting who they are. They're so blind to it. And we are so much like that. Our version of this uh, last thing is 
That we can be all about positioning ourselves in associations, you know, being in the right places, making the right associate, having and keeping the right friends of status for ourselves and our children. And be people who utterly reject the word of God all the while. People are our idols, not the word of God. People and their attentions and favor and association can be our gods. And God is not. And his word is not. And so we can even treat the church this way, taking comfort at being present in the church, being regular at church, but not having a word, a heart for the word of God in church. Uh, Almost like, uh, I can't even remember the association, but uh, it's in some setting where the guy says, nip it, nip it, (laughs) right like that. And I, I've, had this shattering thought about myself that sometimes when the when the service is over it's just like that and I shut off the word of God even as a minister you know like I work so hard I I pray I, I preach it and then it's done I close the book it's my job right but maybe some of you in some ways like after it's over I'm off you know That's enough of the word for a week, right? So we have to ask, what place does the word, is it a little blip, 30 minutes a week? Or is it filtering into the whole of my life? Is it my companion? Am I rooting myself in it, as someone says, like a tree by by waters? Well, I want to close by talking about this title a little bit. Uh, Jesus commands a good and honest heart. We've seen that a good and honest heart will not uh, nurture evil under rule-keeping, rule-making, or right associations, all the while uh, harboring and nurturing and advancing evil under this guise. But I say here, Jesus commands a good and honest heart, and I mean it in two ways. First is just what comes to mind that he demands it or this is his command. Now, the good part of this is that if he commands it, as we're going to see, he's going to bring it about in his people's lives. But he pronounces six times judgment on people who refuse to deal with their heart. Jesus doesn't speak this in this way hardly at all. He he does speak in terms of the cities that had uh, that saw his works and rejected him. And now he pronounces woe on on leaders and people who are living this double life. Heartless rule keeping and rule making and tomb dressing is a recipe for judgment. James says Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. The reality of coming to Christ means to bear my real heart of wickedness before him. And be honest and open. And that that begins to be the atmosphere of being honest and open with one another where Husbands can openly talk about their weaknesses to their wives and wives to their husbands and parents to their children. Why? 
Because you're tasting mercy and grace. You don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to pump yourself up and build yourself up and keep this prop up all the time of your rule keeping, your goodness. Because you've come face to face with what's really in your heart and you're coming to Jesus and you recognize you are a savior even of my heart. Of the deepest issues and desires and hateful things that nobody else knows that are in my heart. But you come to me to save me. You come to me to rescue me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When you taste his mercy, when you're able to fall down in tears and helplessness and gratitude, you see me exactly as I am and still you died for me. You see more of me than I will ever see of my sin and still you died for me. And still you offer the gospel to me. Yes, Jesus commands it. But it's in order that we might fall before him. And realize that we are uncovered. And we are helpless before him in his mercy. But in the second sense. He commands it in the sense that he owns it. He has command of it. He can set one up a good and honest heart wherever he wants. <laughs> He's Lord. He, it doesn't matter how unlikely the place it seems to be where this couldn't be a good and honest heart. This person couldn't become a merciful person. But he can and will make it happen in his people. He saves us from nurturing evil in our hearts. He cleans our hearts. He repairs our hearts. It says here that you Pharisees don't love God. But in in Deuteronomy 36, it says the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the great thing we struggle with was affection, a warm, zealous love and desire for God? He says, I'll take care of that. I will circumcise your heart. I'll do that surgery. And it'll be a long process. And in one way it'll be a lifetime. But I will take up your cause. I will change your heart. You see, Jesus takes command of our hearts through his death and resurrection. He died for rule keepers and rule makers and tomb builders. He died for us hypocrites. He died for us liars and deceivers. We who hide our true selves from each other. We who prop up a false front of righteousness to impress others. He died for us who are eaten up with a critical controlling spirit. He died for us. You'd think he'd push you away with disgust. No, he doesn't. He died for you. And he's calling you to have a new life. He says in the new covenant words of Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that hard heart that we have. And I will give you a heart of flesh that's warm, that's alive, that's responsive, that's merciful and kind and patient. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules, especially mercy. (laughs) Especially mercy. I added that. Okay, I added that. But (laughs) 
So he is Lord of the heart. A good and honest heart is a result of his powerful grace. He saves your heart. He saves your life. He makes you more and more an oasis of kindness to those around you. He makes you an oasis of joy and comfort to those around you. He makes you an oasis of patience and mercy to those around you. Because Jesus commands a good and honest heart. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you as you pierce the facade of these Pharisees that you pierce our facade as well. In calling them to repentance, you call us to repentance as well. And Lord, we are encouraged by what we read earlier. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Oh Lord, may we live in your mercy and forgiveness. May we fall helplessly before you and welcome your grace into our lives. And Lord, may we reflect it to others by your grace. Oh, bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.